Well, what a great song. Amen. And he is still there. Doesn't matter where you're at or, or what you're going through, what the hardship is, what the storm is. Doesn't matter. Jesus is always there. And he's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And I'm grateful for that. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Since we're studying Nehemiah's story, that would probably be a good place to go, don't you think? And so we're in Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we're going to begin today. Nehemiah and chapter number 1. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalah, the and it came to pass in the month Chislu, that is December, uh, on our calendar, in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, I was in Sushan the palace, that Hanani, Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess, confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I pray thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye return to me and keep my commandment and do them, though they were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, Yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Lord, I beseech thee, let now thy ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in thy sight, this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pray. Father, help us, I pray now, in these moments we spend in your word. I pray that you would give us today, God, the things that, that only you can. Minister to us and speak to our hearts. We'll thank you and praise you for all that you do. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Now, in order for us to benefit from the study that we're going to do in Nehemiah over these next weeks, um, I think it's very important that we lay a foundation for what this book is all about. It actually began during the time of King Solomon. You know that Solomon had 
a great wisdom, and yet in spite of his wisdom, he transgressed the commandments and the Word of God and the will of God for his life, and he, he married what the Bible calls many strange women. These were women that did not know the Lord. They were not connected with the God of Israel. They did not understand uh, the, the moral boundaries that the Israelites were commanded to live by. And, and so because of that, because of his divided heart, God divided the nation of Israel into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom being under Jeroboam and the southern kingdom being under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon himself. And, and so uh, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, which by the way had been ruled by a series of wicked kings, not a good one amongst the entire lot, the uh, Assyrian army came in and swept them away into captivity. The southern kingdom, which is called Judah, under the reign of Rehoboam, remained intact until 586 B.C., when it was finally conquered by the Babylonians and, and the, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah being Jerusalem, the Babylonians actually made, they actually made um, uh, three movements or three attacks against the southern kingdom. And finally, uh, because of the rebellion that was there, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They burned the gates. They destroyed the walls and uh, literally just annihilated the place. And in that captivity, the most promising of the young Jews were brought with them to, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they were there used in positions of leadership, of science, of math, the educational system, and as servants in the king's court. That, that happened so many times. In fact, the psalmist records that they were so moved by their departure from their homeland that they hung their harps on willow trees and refused to sing. Psalm 137. The Persians finally supplanted the Babylonians and became what we would call the heavyweight champions of the world. And in doing so, they ultimately allowed some of the Jews to return to their homeland. So this, this group of Jews that came back, they found their city in ruins. The gates burned, the walls in rubble, the people in disarray. They were hunted and hounded and abused by the tribal people that lived in that area and had taken pretty much over the real estate. It was a greatly discouraging sight that they came back to. It was so much so that they did not feel like there was anything that they could do to actually regain the position of prominence that they had once held. It was too big of a task. And so rather than doing something... They resigned themselves to doing nothing. And so the city remained. Years passed and the city remained broken amidst the ashes and the ruins, absolutely unrecognizable as the great city that Jerusalem had once been. 
And so Nehemiah steps upon the stage. He is um, still in Persia. And he was the cupbearer for the king. We would consider that a pretty cushy job. He was in what we would call civil service. And the important thing, I think, is that God had him in a place where he could use him. And he was, though unbeknownst to him at this time, initially, he was chosen by God to be the man that would rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, some Jews under Zerubbabel had gone back, and then Ezra, Zerubbabel the prince, Ezra the priest, they would go back in and they would try to set things up in temple worship. But until the walls were rebuilt, there was nothing there. A city that is broken down and without walls, okay, that's, that's a man who has no control over his own spirit. Our life is oftentimes in the, in the Bible likened unto walls. A man who hath no control over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. If the walls are gone, then we are susceptible and vulnerable to all sorts of vices and things that would come in upon us and overtake our life, ruin us, enemies of ours that would rob from us our spiritual integrity. And so many times you find the symbolism of walls in the Bible that are for lives. Now I want to begin the meat of this message after just laying that brief introduction. I want to begin the meat of it with a question. It's a question that, that I hope will permeate our thinking as we look at these initial uh, parts of Nehemiah's life in regards to, to what we've read today. The question I want to present to you is simply this, and that is, can you live with the rubble? Are you able to live in the midst of the rubble? The reality of the matter is that 150 years uh, had passed since the exiles had returned to Jerusalem. That's a long time. If you think about that, 150 years had passed. 75 years earlier, half of that time period, they had actually begun a process to rebuild the walls. But it was so enormous a task. It was so big that they finally accepted the way things were. This is where we are. This is where we live. We'll just walk around the rubble. And that's exactly what they did. We'll just, we'll just circumvent the rubble and act like it's not really there. And the reality is this, dear friend, and that is that in everybody's life, at some time or another, there, there is ruin. We come to a crisis point in our life that, that is overwhelming. And, and, and what it leaves behind to a certain degree is rubble in all of our lives. And we have to decide, can we live with the rubble? Can we, can we just act like it's not there and, and ignore it? And, and sometimes that's, that's the easiest thing for us to do. 
It may be a relationship with a child that needs rebuilding. And so now you're faced with rubble and you're trying to decide whether you can rebuild or just have to stay amongst the stuff, walk amongst the ashes, endure rather than enjoy life. Maybe, maybe you could be in the process of rebuilding a business that was damaged by the, sh- the shutdown, the lockdown. Your finances are gone and you're trying to figure out how you're going to make it, how you're going to survive. Perhaps, perhaps it's your integrity that you have to rebuild after a bad choice took you down a wrong road. Maybe you're seeking to rebuild a happy life after a sad divorce. Some are seeking to rebuild life after losing somebody very dear to them. That's not always an easy step. It could be your confidence that needs rebuilding after abysmal failure in some form or another. Maybe you're trying to just rebuild the marriage that is in critical condition. Now, the reality is sometimes it's easier to start from scratch, just quit and start over, than it is to gather the rubble and clear the ground and begin to build again. And we have to come to a place to where we decide, is this worth the effort? Is my marriage worth it? Is my relationship with my child worth it? Is it worth the energy and worth the time? of clearing the junk and dealing with the ashes and dealing with the rubble and dealing with the mess that this is left behind. It's twice the work. Because not only are there things that need to be done, but in rebuilding anything, there are things that need to be undone. You have to undo some things. Remove some rubble. Sometimes life goes off script. We wonder where the wall went and why we're staring at a pile of rubble. So we have to make a choice. I just want this to sink in in a practical way of looking at the book of Nehemiah. We have to make a choice, a decision as to whether we're going to live amongst the rubble, become intimidated by the task, to settle into settling for second best and what's left are to get busy rebuilding our life. Now, somebody tore these walls down. They were destroyed by the Babylonian army. Long before Nehemiah got there, the walls were destroyed by the fault of somebody else. And so it could be that there was somebody else in your life that that tore down part of who you were, part of the security of your life, and left it in rubble. And you've got to decide whether you're going to live with what they left you or whether you're going to build something new something fresh, something that has meaning. Don't, 
Listen, do not allow yourself to become the victim of other people's choices. I'm not saying that it doesn't impact you. I'm not saying that it does not scar you. I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt you and that the pain is not real. I'm simply saying that, that what you do is you allow them control over you continually. Don't do that. The exiles, people that were already there. Nehemiah didn't go to an empty city. The people that were already there, when he got there, were convinced that the rubble was there to stay and they made no effort whatsoever to make things better. And so here's the deal. Listen, we can sit back and whine. And I've said this before. I do not want, I do not want, I don't want the legacy of what we do in these difficult days to be that we were the generation of whiners. I watched something on the History Channel the other day about the Spanish flu of 1918 and how the Dodge brothers, both of the Dodge brothers who were brilliant men, died. And, and, and I, I saw this special that talked about how, how, this, how this swept the world and yet the people that dealt with it and, and came through it. I, I don't want us to be... I don't, I don't want my legacy to be my complaining and my whining and my post on Facebook. I'd rather it be the fact that, that we believe there is a God in heaven that is still on the throne. And just like the song said, Jesus is always there. All right, look, we all understand what we don't like about this. Good night. There has to come a time... Where, where we decide, okay, we got to deal with it. We can't just sit back and stare at it. And so the reality of the matter is we've got we've to make that decision. Now, let me say this second of all. This is important. And that is that rebuilding begins with a burden. Okay, first of all, you got to answer the question, can I live with the rubble? Well, it's here. I'm just going to ignore it and sit amongst the ashes, or I'm going to be what God wants me to be. I'm going to make, I want to, I'm going to put the energy in to making my life pleasing to God. If you're going to do that, listen, you've got to have a burden. Before we can ever rebuild, we have to have a burden. Now, can I just say this? I think it's important that we note that Nehemiah was what, what would be called a layman. I hate the tags. You know, they used to have in the hospital uh, clergy, men of the cloth. I, now, I'm wearing cloth, and, and, I, and I like cloth. So am I a man of the cloth? We all are. I hate all that. You know, we got clergy and laity. Listen, th- th- that's not biblical. That's not biblical. We, we, we have different callings, maybe. God's placed us in different positions, but there's no upper level, there's no class level in Christianity. So I am clergy, Chad's laity. I'm sorry, Chad. But anyhow, I'm just saying, that doesn't exist, okay? Nehemiah would be considered under that degree, he's just 
laity. He's a church guy. He's not a, he's not a prince like Zerubbabel. He's not a, he's not a, 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 a prophet like many of the others in the Bible. He's not a priest like uh, Ezra. Uh, and, and so he's got a secular position. Can you imagine? Look, think about it. Can you imagine God using someone in a secular position? God doesn't do that. He only uses preachers. No. We got that all twisted and all warped in our minds. Do you know this, that God has a will and a purpose for every single human being? And in your position, whatever it might be, did you know that God has a purpose for you there? Calvin starts a new job Tuesday, Calvin. Got a a new job Tuesday. Listen to me. In that position, God has a place for him. God's got a position. There are people in that job that I will never see and never meet, but Calvin will. And he will be the voice to them of right and truth. And so here's Nehemiah. He doesn't have a degree from a seminary or Bible college, and and yet God has a way and a will for him. And so here he is. And by the way, God uses servants in, in so many different areas. You think of Joseph. You think of Joseph, an innocent sufferer in, a, in an Egyptian dungeon. Gideon was a farm worker hiding behind a locked door in Oprah. David was a young shepherd on the hills of Bethlehem. God uses people uh, in all manners of ways, in all manners of places, doing all manners of work. So don't feel like you've got to be in the ministry. We all have ministry. We all have places of service. God wants to use us all. Nehemiah lived in the palace with all the rest of the upper echelon of Persian society. They've actually done excavations there, and that palace was built with cedar and gold and silver and ivory. The walls that they have found were decorated uh, in an incredibly ornate way. And, and you think of Nehemiah, he would have eaten the best food, he would have wore the best clothes, lived in absolutely comfortable quarters there, and yet his heart was broken for those in need, so much so that he left all of that comfort behind. Sometimes, though we don't like to talk about it today, there's sacrifice. Sometimes it could be that God would call us to give up some things that we enjoy in order to be in a place. I think of the Hetzers. I think of how God has called them from this very valley. And now they're in Sri Lanka serving the Lord. Now, you talk with them, they're not going to talk about their sacrifice, but I think you and I can realize that, 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 that they were willing to let go of some things in order to be where God wanted them. And sometimes that's the, that's the case. Now, Nehemiah was the cupbearer. And as cupbearer, he tasted all of the food that the king ate. Every bit of it. He drank, he, he, he tasted every bit of the wine that the king would taste. In order, the reason that he did that was if it was poison, his life was on the line first. 
And so, King, I'm going to taste this food, and if I drop over dead, I'm suggesting you not take a spoonful of it, okay? That's bad chicken noodle soup. You know what I'm talking about? Could be when he took a sip of wine, if he fell over and killed out and started shaking on the floor, the king might have a good idea. I don't really want that cup. That was his job. But it brought him in very close proximity with the king so much so that he was a trusted man amongst the king's servants. Can you see God working in all that? Can you see God planning this all out in the greater, bigger picture, which we don't see at the time, and yet God is working his will and his plan out through even Nehemiah's job that he has there. So one day his brother shows up. Nehemiah greets him. His brother's been in Jerusalem. There's some friends with him. And Nehemiah says, hey, man, it's great. They hug. Great. Listen, good time. How's Jerusalem? His brother's shoulders slump. His eyes look downward. His voice lowers and he says, it's not good, Nehemiah. The walls are still in rubble. The gates are still burned in charred timber laying all around. And the people, they're greatly discouraged. They, they are literally abused by the enemies around them. There are no walls to keep them out. Jerusalem is a mess. Now, Nehemiah knew those facts, okay? He knew all that. I mean, Nehemiah knew what had happened. He was hoping there would be some change. But he knew the facts of what had happened in Jerusalem. But can I tell you something about facts? Facts won't move you until they reach your heart. You can, you, we've got the knowledge. Come on. The whole world's going to hell. Okay, that won't move you. They used to tell us when, when I was a teenager, if you stretch lost people from end to end, they would circle the globe, I think it was 30 times. That didn't move us. The reality of the matter is facts are cold. Statistics are cold until you realize behind those statistics is somebody's son, somebody's mother, somebody's husband, somebody's wife, somebody's friend. Until facts leave our head and get into our heart and burden us, we're never going to be moved by the coldness of facts. We know it all. We're Bible students. But how has that impacted our heart? And so there's Nehemiah. Look at his response in verse 4. Would you do that? Chapter 1, verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Can I tell you something? Listen, before God ever does a great work on the outside, he begins a great work on the inside. God, God, 
God has to begin His work in a willing heart because God has chosen to use individuals. And so the, the burden begins inside. It's not, it's not, listen, it's not just what you see. Jeremiah the prophet said, Mine eye affecteth my heart. What I have seen has disturbed me on the inside. And he writes the book of Lamentations. It's a book of weepings over what has become evident to him. Now, there are some things that happen today that make us angry. And, 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 and anger's an emotion. There's nothing necessarily wrong. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. There's some things happening in our country that should make us angry. The emotion of anger isn't going to stir us to, to anything that is beneficial or edifying. The reality of the matter is this. Every human being on earth, red, yellow, black, and white, Democrat, Republican, Southerner, Northerner, Easterner, Westerner, they're all going to spend eternity somewhere. And the truth of the matter is, a burden down inside of us is something that is desperately missing in our day and age. If you were to ask me what the great commentary on the churches are today, it would be that we have become indifferent. We've gathered together somehow to be entertained. And we've gotten better at that. We've got our, we've got our praise and worship. And we've, got, we've, got, you know, we've, we've got so many things to offer. And yet we... We're not moved on the inside. We're impacted perhaps by what we hear and we're entertained by what we experience. But we're not really truly burdened. Can I say it this way? There's a polite indifference today amongst the people of God. And, and that's, that's something that can be seen throughout the Bible. The children of Israel certainly suffered from it. They, they, they struggled with indifference to the Word of God. It's not that they denounced God. It's that they did not listen to Him. They turned their back on Him. Jeremiah 32, verse 33, And they have turned unto me the back and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. God said, they're just turning away from me. I'm talking to them and they're turning the back. Ezekiel 3, 7, But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee. He's talking to his man, Ezekiel, the prophet. They're not going to listen to you, Ezekiel. Let me tell you why. For they will not hearken unto me. All the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. And it was no difference in Jesus' day than it was in the days of the prophets. Matthew 13, 15, Jesus said, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed. I don't want to hear. I don't want to see. I don't want to, I don't want to, don't, listen, just don't bother me. So they shut off all inroads into their heart. 
Matthew 15, verse 8, he says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's a sad commentary, isn't it, on the people of God? They want to talk. They, they got the talk. Praise the Lord. Well, praise the Lord. Well, praise the Lord. But in reality, they put their heart under lockdown. I can't get to it. Talk about social distancing. They were spiritually distancing from the Lord. It all looked good, but it, it wasn't real. It's even possible for a church, an entire church, to develop a culture of indifference where, where people run on their programs. They've got the program, it's all set up, and the program just runs. Reminds me of the church there in Revelation, the church of Laodicea. Chapter 3, if you want to turn there, of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans, of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. They were doing stuff. God said, I know what you're doing. I'm aware. I see your programs. I know, you, I know when you have your meeting times. I know everything you've got going. I, I know your works. I know what you're doing. That thou art neither, verse 15, cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm, that's indifference. Because you're not hot and you're not cold, you're just, you're right there in that comfort zone, that lukewarm place of indifference. God said, I will spew thee out of my mouth. They were busy having church. They had their services as usual, ran their programs as always. But somewhere down the line, listen, somewhere down the line, the church in Laodicea had become indifferent to him. Indifferent to the reason why we have church. Look, look, listen, listen. Coming to church isn't being faithful to the pastor. Come to church. You don't come to church for me. Well, if I'm not there, the preacher won't see me. There's somebody, there's somebody more important than me. Somebody bigger than I am. Why do we go to church? It's not for Brother Dean. It's not so that we can be seen. Now, there is accountability, and I think that's wonderful. I think that's, I think that's healthy. That's good. I missed you. Those are all good. Not only that, but we can pray for each other when we're sick and down and out. I think that's healthy. That's one of the wonderful things about a family. But the reason why we're here, the reason why we do what we do, is for Him. When we dismiss, we're going to stack all these chairs and put them on a trailer out that door. Why do we do that? Because if I don't, the preacher will look. No, 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 no. That's not what any of this is about. 
Let's don't ever forget that because it's really easy to become indifferent to me. Okay? If we're doing it for Him, this is His house. This is God's house. And I've said this a million times. It doesn't... It's not that, 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 that we belong, that it belongs to us, it's that we belong to it. This is the house of the living God. We come and we serve, we sing and we worship, all for Him. And so it's easy, even as a church, to become indifferent if we're not careful. They're, they're, listen, here's, here's the church at Laodicea. Contrast it with Nehemiah. Here's the church at Laodicea. No burden. No burden, no passion, just autopilot. I want you to listen to this statement by Ellie Weissel. Listen, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. Because indifference drains us of everything in every area of life. If you become indifferent in your marriage, you've got trouble. You become indifferent in your relationships with others, they're doomed. If you become indifferent about your health, indifferent about your finances, indifferent about your church and your worship and your walk with God, you're going to suffer in the long run. I I don't know, but do you think perhaps maybe God is trying to show us in these days of such problematic things where we're alarmed with churches being closed. Friends of mine in California, you think maybe that God is trying to show us that we've become indifferent toward the things that He holds dear? And maybe it's not just liberal governors. that consider church is non-essential. Maybe God's saying the greater problem in America, if God's people, think with me, if God's people had not begun to become indifferent to the things of God, and if we had not considered church non-essential, Non-essential in our schools, in our educational system, in our upbringing. Maybe if we had not considered God non-essential, if we had not become indifferent for the things of God, maybe we would not have elected governors that now tell us church is non-essential. This could just be a gigantic wake-up call to America. 
it could be saying to people, uh, my house is more important than the lake. My house is more important than the fun. Nothing wrong with those things, but you better start tuning in to what's going on in my house if you want your nation to be changed. Last of all, this is important for us to remind ourselves, and that is burdens always carry a cost. If you've got a burden, there's a cost involved to fulfilling your burden. A burden means I've got to do something. A burden means God has placed upon me a responsibility. If you have a burden for a neighbor that's struggling, well, what do you do with it? I don't, I don't do nothing with it. No, you've got a burden for somebody. You've got, you got, you got, you got a burden for the homeless? You've got a burden for lost people? You've you got a burden for a children's ministry? You've got to do something. Because with that burden comes a responsibility and, and, and a cost. And, and any great work that God is going to do begins by Him doing a work in somebody. Nehemiah's body was in Persia, but his heart was 800 miles away. In a pile of rubble called Jerusalem. My dear friend, the longest journey always begins with the first step. Now, what was Nehemiah's first step? By the way, people don't want a burden today. They want a blast. They, they want to have fun. But, but amidst the fun, God gives us burdens. You know what compassion is? I want you to hear me. Listen. You know what compassion is? Compassion is someone else's hurt in your heart. That's what compassion is. When you allow the pain of somebody else to get in your heart, that's compassion. So here's Nehemiah. Look, look, look. he's got it made. But there's a problem. The problem is this. As a cupbearer, if you come before the king... And, 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 and you are downcast or downtrodden in the king's presence, that's, that's, that's death penalty. You don't do that to the king. You, you want to cry, go outside and cry. You, you, you want to you complain? You got the mully grubs? You're not having a good day? You don't, you don't, listen, you don't not have a good day in the presence of the king. Fake it. You better be all smiles and happiness in the king's presence. So here comes Nehemiah in, and the king knows him so well because he served the king faithfully for so long. The king looks at him and says, okay, stop, stop the put on. Something's wrong with you, son. What's wrong with you? Something's eating at you. And Nehemiah pours his heart out to the king. My city's in ruins. I'm in trouble in my own heart, over it. I've got a burden for my city. And the king says, what do you want from me? 
What's your request? You know what the Bible says? You read it. You know what the Bible says? Nehemiah prayed. I'm going to tell you something you're going to find. We'll hit it every now and then. Let me tell you something you're going to find as we read the book of Nehemiah. He prayed, and then he prayed, and then he prayed, and then he prayed, and then he prayed. Before he did anything, he prayed. He's got a burden. The king says, first of all, he prayed before he saw the king. For a time period, several months, he prayed and fasted. And then when he went in to see the king, that short little prayer of, Lord, what do I do, was based upon the bigger prayer before he ever got before the king. Somebody said, just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Well, that's good, but maybe that little talk with Jesus should be based upon sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care. Our little prayers are built upon the foundation of our greater prayers. And so here's Nehemiah. He goes before the king, and it could have cost him his life, but he had a burden. And so he risked everything to fulfill his burden. That's important. Let me tell you something. And by the way, I love the humility of his prayer. I'm not going to take time on that. But I love the humility. He's praying about the sins of Israel. You know what he says? God, I'm going to tell you something. That's a sorry lot. Now, I know they're your children, but listen. That is a sorry lot of people that they would allow to happen, and I've got to go build the ruins from the rubble because nobody has a heart like my heart. Nobody cares like I care. And I'm going to be honest with you, God. I'm going to deal with them, but I'm going to really need your help and your patience because that's a pitiful group of people. You know what he said? We have sinned. I am a father's house. Lord, we transgressed your law. We, we didn't do what you told us to do. We haven't listened to Moses. We, 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 we. He identified with the people where he went. That's not clergy laity. That's the guy that's saying, I got the same problems everybody else has got. We're in this together. I am one of them. And they are just like me. We're in it together, God. I confess my faults. And God uses a man like that. He didn't have a hierarchical mentality. Now, if all you've got is a burden, it's going to stress you out. See, it's going to stress you out. If, if all you do is walk around, all you do is walk around, and you just got heaviness. Oh, my word. How you doing today? I'm heavy. Well, how's things going? Well, I'm just heavy. Well, how you feeling? Pretty heavy. Look, just run for the hills, okay? Always got a burden. No, no, what are you doing with your burden? You know why God gave me this burden? To put it down somewhere so somebody could sit in it. So it would help ease somebody that's walking. That's why I got this chair. God gave me this burden so that I could relieve somebody on their journey. Go plop a chair down and say, here, take, take, take a load off. Have a seat. This is for a reason. 
God doesn't give you your, burny, your burden to make you feel miserable. God gives you a burden so that you can help somebody. If all you've got is a burden, you're just weighted down, stressed out. So what do you do? You say, Father, what do I do with this? How, how do you want me to help somebody with this? And God will say, take that chair and put it in the corner. Give it to Cindy. Let Cindy sit in it. See, it's, it's the prayer that gives us the direction on what to do with our burdens. Four months he prayed. I want you to listen. I'm going to close. Look at me. He prayed four months. Four months. And then a job that would have taken years... It only took him 52 days to rebuild the wall. That's stunning. He prayed four months and then built the wall in 52 days. Can I just suggest this? this, is, this is, I'm, you need to get your pen and paper out because this is going to be astounding. And anytime I say something astounding, it's worth noting, okay? Think, of, think about the power of this statement. It might help us to get God in on what we're doing. Is that amazing? How could I think of such a brilliant thought? Why do we try to do it on our own? Why, why, why? Listen, the beginning of getting it done after God had burdened his heart was prayer. Oh, my friend, how we need a number of years ago, Susie and I went to the Louvre in France. It was the beginning of my art career <laughs> when they threw me out. But anyhow, we went to the Louvre. One of the great masterpieces of French art there in the Louvre, it's a large picture, and uh, it's painted by Theodore Garricault, and it's called The Raft of the Medusa. You cannot look at it without it drawing your eyes. It mesmerizes you. Garakalt was criticized for painting it because people said that he had exploited something that had recently happened. It was a, it, it was a tragic event in 1816 when a frigate ran aground. There were so many people on board and... The life rafts could not carry them to safety. So they took the wood and built literally a raft. 147 people crowded onto that raft. But 13 days later, there were only 15 survivors. And the horrors of what happened during those 13 days shook the civilized world of France. As you look at that painting, visually there, there are two groups of people. There's a group of people that have fallen out to what they 
have finally resigned themselves to, there's no hope, we're going to die, there's just 15 of us left, others have died, we cannot survive, we will not make it, and so they, they either have their backs turned or they're, they're just laying out semi-dead on that raft. The other group in the background are frantically waving at a small ship in the distance, no longer thinking about what has happened, no longer thinking about what was. That group has found hope. So with all of their heart, they're trying to reach for the future. Can you live amongst the rubble? How do you like burned timber? How do you like the stench of ashes? How do you like walking amongst what was? Nehemiah had a burden to rebuild. And I don't know what your past has been, all of you. I I don't know all the details. But I do know that God will burden our hearts to rebuild whatever it is that Satan or others or whoever has destroyed. We've just got to take the first step of the journey, yield ourselves to Him. Let's bow our heads. Could we do that? His bowed bowed eyes closed. Chad's going to begin playing on the piano. Maybe right where you're at, you want to just take a moment. Hey, talked with somebody just the other day whose loved one lay in a hospital. They were discouraged. And this is what I said. There's God and there's hope. God's still on His throne. Well, there's hope. Hope for your life to become what God wants it to be. God can help you pick the rubble and rebuild the wall if you let him do it. That's the practical application of Nehemiah. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, can I tell you that Jesus loves you? He died for you. Please don't leave this place. Please don't leave this place without allowing us to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure you're saved. Father and our God, we're grateful today for the hope that is in you. I pray that you would bless us and use us, help us to have a burdened heart that we might become the people that you want us to be. Lord, use us, I pray, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.